Yeah, chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, let's read the ground that we'll be covering today and then we'll get into the study. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Lord, we thank you for your word today. And for the warning that is here, for us to not harden our hearts against you, for God, you are the God of the universe. You hold all things in your hand. You created all things. You spoke it into existence. And all things exist for your glory. And Lord, we just repent that we are glory seekers for our own. We ought not to be. We should be living for your glory. You are great and awesome and you are God and we're just dust. What is man that you're mindful of us, and yet you are? It's wonderful, Lord, that you're so concerned. Thank you that you know about every orphan in Myanmar today. You know about every need. Thank you that you're able to meet people in their brokenness. And Lord, we ask amongst us, people who are affluent, who are blessed, who are rich and wealthy and okay in every way, according to world standards, that you would break us to a certain degree, Lord. That you would give us soft hearts in our fluency and our wellness. Don't let us get hard in our hearts, Lord. Jesus, teach us about yourself, the faithful high priest, the great and merciful God who took a rebellious people and reconciled us to a holy God. Jesus, be revealed in this place. Be honored, be exalted in this place. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd help me to communicate these truths that are before us. Help me not to confuse them. Help me to only speak your truth in your words. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we move from chapter 2, which was speaking about the cross and the benefits of the cross, the restoration of our lost destiny and our unity and our redemption from the enemy and the fact that Jesus, because of the cross, receives us in times of failure, we now move into another warning passage. Chapter 2 started with a warning that we're to pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift from it. And now the author brings us back to a warning and we'll see repeated warnings all throughout the book of Hebrews. 
It says here in verse one again of chapter three, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, the situation, once again, is that the Hebrews are encountering difficult times, more difficult than most of us could ever imagine. Their very lives were being threatened for being Christians. The Roman government had made it illegal to be a Christian, and many Christians would be killed for their faith in the weeks and months and years to come in the Roman Empire during this time. So this is written to Christians who are fearing for their very life. And they know that there's a moment coming where they, in the face of threat at the threat of death, are either going to have to stand firm and confess Christ and suffer the consequences, or deny Christ and be politically correct. Now, there's an application in our world for that. It's not as intense, but it may be someday. But we, nonetheless, are pressured in society to deny Christ. Maybe not just verbally, you know what I mean? But nobody wants to see the righteousness of God proclaimed. Nobody wants to see the truth of Jesus Christ proclaimed. Nobody wants to hear that He is the only unique Son and Savior demonstrated by His death and His resurrection. Those are not popular messages in the world today that He indeed is the judge of the living and the dead and that every person will stand before Him to give account. These are not popular ideas in society today. And what society would like to do is to hush the church, is to quiet the church, to quiet the individual who is representing Jesus Christ in both word and deed. So we can relate to the pressure. We're not threatened for our lives Not in this country, not yet. But we can relate to a certain degree. And so the verse says here to the original audience and to you and I, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, reminding us that our identity and our reality is in Jesus Christ. We are called holy brethren. We as Christians have had a change in our core identity. Amen? Our core identity previously being that we were sinners because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We have been transformed and we are now considered saints. We are not considered saints because of what we do. You know that. We are not considered saints because of how we live. We are considered saints because of who Jesus is and his work upon the cross in forgiving you and I. And when we receive that work, we become identified with him who is the Holy One. And so in our identification with him, we are made and proclaimed holy. Saints is the word. Hagios in the Greek. It means holy or saints. So we have had a core identity change from sinners to saints. And so we're reminded here of that identity. We're called holy brethren. And we're also reminded of the fact that we are partakers of a heavenly calling, meaning we participate in, as Christians, we participate in something otherworldly. Otherworldly. This world and all that it has to offer is not the end for us. Amen? This world and all it has to offer is is not the totality of what we think about or who we are or what we have to do with. But our calling is otherworldly. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
And so the goal of the Christian is to keep as light of a hold, as light of a touch as possible on the things of the world, lest we become overly entangled with them and distracted from the reality, which is Jesus Christ. And so we are reminded here that we're partakers in a heavenly calling. That is our salvation and the work of God through Christ. We're partakers in that. We benefit from the work of Jesus Christ to save humanity. And what we're told to do here is to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Remember now, the original audience was living in very difficult times. And so they're being reminded, in your difficulty, think about Jesus. Now, there is a protocol for difficult times. We need to remember when things aren't going the way that they ought to, to consider, to think upon, to meditate upon, to explore the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? We'll talk about it more in a minute. That should be intuitive to the Christian, but usually when difficulty comes, or I should say sometimes when difficulty comes, we get distracted from Jesus and who he is, and we get our eyes on the circumstances and off of him. What we want to do is view ourselves and the world around us through the lens of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus stays big in our perspective and the things in this world are not so overwhelming. But if you let your lens become your circumstances or your difficulties or your trials or your tribulations or your have-nots or your what-ifs or your why-nots or I wish I would've or I wish this, if that becomes your lens, then what you do is you begin to lose perspective. And those things loom large in your psyche and Jesus Christ, whom is the savior of your soul, begins to seem small and we get out of whack, we get off kilter, we get off track. And it's easy then to get overwhelmed by the circumstances of the world when we should be overwhelmed with the love of Jesus Christ. So, if you want to praise him, praise him. Yeah, just make up your mind, man. Either way, it's cool. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is called the apostle here. It is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is called the apostle. The word in Greek is apostolos. It simply means one who is sent. Apostolos, one who is sent. Now, Jesus' disciples were apostles in that he sent them out to preach and to minister the good news of the kingdom, right? So they were called apostles, lowercase a, just ones who were sent, apostles of Jesus Christ. Later on, as the church progressed, they were recognized as founding members of the church, and the term apostle became a title for them, and now it was like a capital A, like the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter. So apostle simply means one who is sent. It's just a term, a designation. But for the founders of the church, James, Peter, Paul, so on and so forth, it became a title for them because they played that foundational role. But Jesus here is recognized as the ultimate founder of Christianity, the one who was sent by the Father, the apostle, capital A. The point being this. That the validity and the reality of our faith rests upon the person of Jesus Christ. The validity and the reality of our faith rests upon the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity is not a set of theological ideas. Christianity is not merely an ideology. Christianity is not a philosophical framework. 
Christianity is the outflow of a real person, Jesus Christ, who caused real historical events in this world, the cross and the resurrection, most poignantly. So our faith is founded upon an actual person and upon real history. And because our faith is founded on him, he must remain the center. Jesus Christ must be the center of our Christianity as it is corporately practiced and individually experienced. Jesus must remain the center. We cannot let our Christianity become about church. That's churchianity and we don't want it. That's religion and we're not into it. It's got to continue to be about the person of Jesus Christ. He is the focus. He is the founder. He is the reason. He is the reality. And the daily goal of the Christian is to keep Jesus at the center of our heart and our minds. Amen? Very easily said, not that easily done. We've got to practice that. We've got to be purposeful about that. It's so easy to be distracted with our own pursuits. What you find, now I'm digressing a little bit, but what you find is this. If Jesus is the center and the focus and the passion, everything else is just kind of cool. Relationships work the way that they're supposed to work. You're able to view possessions the way that you should view possessions. You're able to deal with your other passions in the way that they should be dealt with. You're able to pursue other things in a right, godly, good, and righteous way. And then, and then you're, you're easily satisfied. Now you're, you're easily satisfied with your spouse because you don't find your identity or your hope in them. Your hope and your identity is in Jesus Christ. So now it's easy to be satisfied with your spouse. And now it's easy to forgive people because the focus is Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that we've received from him. And now we don't become overly entangled in pursuits of wealth and fame and opportunity and recognition because Jesus is the one whom we recognize and he's the one who's famous in our hearts and he's the one that we want to pursue. And so now we can pursue these things rightly godly, and in a manner in which they continue to be submitted to the person of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is keep Jesus on the throne and everything else falls in place. I think Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else shall be added unto you. Amen. Amen. So Jesus is the apostle and he's also called here the high priest. Now we spoke about that term last week and it's going to come up many more times in the book of Hebrews. So we won't belabor it today because we're already behind schedule on the sermon. But it pictures Jesus as the one who reconciles us to God and mediates between a holy God and a sinful people. The point of him being the high priest is that we are accepted by and we are in relationship with God only because of the high priestly work of Jesus Christ, his work upon the cross. So it says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Of our confession. Our confession is just that, that Jesus is the apostle, he's the high priest. He's the only unique son of God, member of the Trinity. He is himself God. He's the only savior of the world. He died upon the cross. He rose from the dead. He lives to offer salvation to all of humanity. And he is the ruling, reigning, coming king of the universe. That is our confession. 
Now, confession here, the Greek word is homologia, homologia, and it means simply this, a confession or a statement of allegiance. A statement of allegiance. What's happening here is these Hebrew Christians who are being threatened because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ are being told to hold fast to that allegiance, to maintain that statement of allegiance. Consider Jesus, the one whom is the center of our allegiance, the one about whom we talk about, and stay committed to him. Confession, a statement of allegiance. You guys know what allegiance is. We used to do the Pledge of Allegiance. and I don't even know how to do it anymore. Once you get out of school, you used to do the Pledge of Allegiance in school, right? You know what an allegiance is. In the Christian life, since we're doing a baptism next week, baptism is a statement of allegiance. What you're saying in baptism is this. My life is no longer my own, but I belong to Jesus Christ. I no longer live for myself. I live for him. I have been bought with a price. My identity has been consumed and subsumed in his glory. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith unto him who gave himself for me. And we identify ourselves through baptism with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Going down into the water, being a picture of being identified with his death. Coming up out of the water, identifying with his resurrection. It is an outward display of an inward reality that I have died and my life is hidden in Christ Jesus. And I've risen to new life and the devil no longer has power over me. And I am free from the power the presence and the penalty of sin in Jesus Christ. That is our statement of allegiance and baptism is a form of that. So if you haven't been baptized as a Christian, you must be. Jesus commanded it. You must be baptized. You must make that public statement of allegiance. We do the baptisms down at the beach and we try to do it during the time of the year when there's a lot of people there because it's to be a public confession a public statement. And we as Christians do not shrink away from that. We are not ashamed of our Lord and our God and Savior. As Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so we want to hold firm to that confession remembering who Jesus Christ is. So the point of this first verse, we are so far behind. <laughs> the point of this first verse is this. Though you are experiencing hard times because of your allegiance to Jesus, just remember who he is and what he has done for you and stand firm. Now, the point of the following verses, verses two through six, is this. That you have never known, nor will you ever find a more faithful leader or a better thing to be led into than Jesus in the heavenly call of salvation. And so in making this point, if he's going to say to these Hebrew Christians that Jesus is the ultimate one, then who in the Hebrew psyche does he have to deal with? Maybe I didn't. Did someone in the back say Moses? Yes. All right, Katie, God bless you. Moses, Katie got it. Moses. Okay. The author has got to deal with Moses. Nobody in the collective Hebraic psyche loomed larger than the figure of Moses. Verse 2. 
says, Jesus was faithful to him, that is God, who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. So what the author wants to do now, because remember, these Hebrew Christians are being tempted to go back to Judaism because their Christianity isn't working out the way that they thought it would. It might cost them their life. So he's proving to them that Jesus is superior to Moses. Just as he spent a lot of time in chapter 1 and chapter 2 proving that Jesus is superior to angels. And he does not begin by discounting, discounting, excuse me, that was weird, by discounting Moses in any way. But rather, he says that Moses was faithful in what he was called to do. And it also says that Jesus was faithful in all of God's house. God's house in this context, in this verse, is Israel. Moses was a faithful leader of Israel and a faithful deliverer of Israel. But Jesus is the deliverer and the savior of Israel. And there's a key difference between the two that highlights the superiority of Jesus Christ over the person of Moses. Look at the next two verses. Verse 3. For he has been, that is Jesus, he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So stated very simply here, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because the one who builds the house is greater than the house itself. And Moses was part of the household of Israel. But God is the creator of all things, and namely, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 2 says that Jesus Christ created all things. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says he's the creator of all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 6 and in John chapter 1 verse 3 we learn that Jesus is the one who created all things and that all things exist for him. Jesus is a builder of all things. Therefore, he must be superior to Moses whom he created. Right? No duh. Verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. So we're told here that once again, Moses was faithful and he was faithful over Israel as a leader, but knows it, notice He's recognized as a servant in God's house. And that the work he did, he did as a testimony of the things which were to come. In other words, everything that Moses did as a leader in Israel pointed toward the person of Jesus Christ. It was all a foreshadowing of, a picture of, Jesus Christ in his coming. All of Moses' work in the exodus, in the wilderness, 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 Help me, Jesus. The wilderness wandering and all those things, Mount Sinai and the law and all of this, all of those were incomplete without the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, verses 1 and 2 remind us of that. As it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. So Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament spoke about. And Moses was a servant of those things, and his ministry looked forward to Jesus Christ. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, put on the PowerPoint, is a good one. Speaking of all the Old Testament things, it says, these things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. Or as the NIV says, the reality is found in Jesus. By the way, that's where our church gets its name, reality. It says in this verse that Jesus is the reality. All of those old things in the worship life of Israel, Moses and Mount Sinai and the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and all of those things pointed towards Jesus. Jesus is the reality of those things. Jesus is reality. Don't let your reality get distracted by things that ought to remain on the periphery. Don't let the things of this world become your reality. Don't let your disappointments become your reality. I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm simply saying that Jesus is bigger. That Jesus is better. That Jesus is able. That he is the sum and the substance, the reason and the reality. And if we keep our hearts and our lives and our eyes focused on him, then he will see us through these difficulties. So Moses was faithful in God's Israel as a servant of God, but it says in verse 6 that Jesus was faithful as a son. The point is, and everyone understands, that a son has a higher position in a household than a servant. So Jesus, in the mind of Israel, is greater than Moses. And that was important for them to understand. Because Moses was so large, as I said, in the Hebraic mindset. And so when following Jesus was no longer paying off the way they thought it would, they're tempted to go back to Moses and the law and the things of the old covenant. We're tempted in that way all the time. This isn't working out the way that I thought it would. I gave my life to Jesus. All my problems aren't magically gone. I'm still struggling with this. I'm still feeling that. I'm still feeling disappointed about this. This isn't working the way that I thought it would. And we see that many people go back to old things. And the exhortation of the book of Hebrews is stand firm. Hold fast the confession of our faith until the end. Jesus is faithful. In the end, he wins. The story isn't over yet. When the bell rings, you want to make sure you're on his team because he wins. Amen? Amen. Now notice the movement here in this verse. In verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. We are called the household of God now. It's not that we replace Israel. The book of Romans is very clear that we are grafted into the life of Israel. We don't succeed them. We don't supplant. We don't replace Israel. The church is grafted into the promises and the covenants that God made with Israel. But here's the wonder of this. We are called here the household of God. Think about what that means. What does a household mean? Household is something you work on. This means that we are the work of God, we are the concern of God, we are that which God maintains, and we are there in which God dwells. As a household of God, we are the work of God, the concern of God, that which God maintains, and we are where God dwells. Does anybody here own a home? You own your home. Oh, yeah, I guess we live in a horrible place. <laughs> Not, show me your hand if you own 
okay, yeah. Okay, renters don't even talk to me. Because I've had renters before. I don't even want to deal with you. (laughs) Homeowners, okay, you know what this is like. You work on your home. You care for your home. You are concerned for your home. You're happy to dwell in that place. There is a real sense of ownership. And the New Testament says that we do not belong to ourselves. We've been bought with a price. We belong to God. We are his household. We are his work, his concern. He maintains us and he dwells in us and is just as concerned as a homeowner is for their home when there is dilapidation when something isn't working correctly when the plumbing has gone awry as a homeowner you deal with it as a renter eh. as a homeowner you deal with it we are God's owned we are owned by him he deals with us If there's something that's gone awry in your life, he wants to deal with it. He loves you intimately, infinitely, and wonderfully. Don't keep any portion of your heart from him. When you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but rather yield to him, which is the subject of the last part. Look what it says here in verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me, God speaking now here, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their hearts and they did not know my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, we have here a very strong warning not to harden our hearts when we hear the voice of God. What the harden the heart means is to stubbornly refuse to obey. To stubbornly refuse to obey. And if we're going to be honest, we all struggle with this from time to time. You know that God is wanting you to deal with that issue. You know that God is wanting to work on that issue. But you want to keep it hidden away. You don't want to deal with it. Either you enjoy it too much... Or there's too much pain associated with it. Or it's been with you so long that it feels like home. It's become a place of comfort for you. Whatever your sick, perverted reason that we have is, when we hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. But respond to the Lord in obedience. Now, he's going to make this point by reminding them of three Old Testament passages that every single one of the original audience would have been familiar with them. With First of all, he's quoting Psalm 95. Let's go there. Go to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, Hebrews verses 7 through 11 are quoting verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 95. We'll start reading in verse 1 just to get a little context. This is a Psalm of David. It's a wonderful one. You should be familiar with it. Psalm 95 starting in verse 1 says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. Uh, I don't have time to digress, but just for a moment. Do, Do you see there what worship ought to be like? Let us sing for joy. Let us shout joyfully. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully. There is no sense of worship with your hands in your pocket and your mouth closed. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. As it says in verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it is He who made it. And His hands form the dry land. Come on, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. By the way, I shared with you earlier, Colossians uh, 2.17, Jesus is the reality of these things from where we get our name. It's this passage that caused us to want to put the carpets up front during our worship services. Because when the Bible says, bow down and kneel before the Lord our God and our maker, I think that we ought to be able to do that. And I think we ought to be able to do that in the corporate sense. We certainly do that in our own private time, perhaps. But this says, let us. This is a worship leader of Israel, David, calling Israel to worship. And he says, we ought to shout and we ought to bow down and we ought to kneel before him. That's why we said, look, let's take out several rows of seats and let's put carpets up here. So if we want to be biblical about worship and bow and get on our faces before God, then there's freedom to do so. That's why we do that. Now, here's the part we wanted to see. (laughs) Verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Therefore, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, meaning a place of strife, as in the day of Massa, meaning temptation or quarrel in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. So here's the psalm that was quoted by the author of Hebrews. Now, verses 8 and 9 are referring to a rebellion against God by Israel in Exodus 17. Verses 10 and 11 are are speaking about another rebellion of Israel against God in Numbers 14. I want us to look at them both very quickly. Go to Exodus 17 now. We made up some time. We're back on track. (laughs) Exodus chapter 17. This is one of the initial rebellions of Israel as they're setting out in the wilderness. Exodus 17, we'll read verses 1 through 7. Exodus 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin... You might think as it says wilderness of sin, that that's a metaphorical thing, this wandering wilderness. It doesn't mean sin like we talk about sin. It's an actual place that happened to have a Hebrew name that sounded like sin, but it's not talking about sin like we're talking about sin. So this is not a metaphorical reading. That was an actual place. That's just the name of it. They journey by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and encamped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. 
Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with these people, Lord? A little more and they're going to stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named that place Massa and Meribah, meaning testing and quarreling, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? There is the rebellion. We see that they come to a place. Now the exodus has happened. They're wandering in the wilderness. Not so much wandering at this point. Actually, it's before the wandering. They're purposefully going toward the promised land. And they come to a place of difficulty. They come to a place of dryness. And what they do at that time is they grumble and complain and begin to doubt God's presence and purpose in their life. And there is the failure. And can anybody relate? You come to a place of difficulty, a place that is arid, a place that is dry, a place where you don't feel nourished and whole necessarily. And what do you do? You begin to doubt the Lord. Is God really good? Is God really with me? Does God really care? If we were to be honest, most of us have been in that place before. Doubting the goodness of God, doubting the purpose of God and the presence of God. And what Israel did is what Christian people often do. They begin to complain against the leadership. It's often what they do. I can tell you by experience. (laughs) They complain against the leadership. Moses, what are you doing to us? Moses, why'd you bring us out? You bring us out here to die? Take note. Throughout the Old Testament, when Israel quarreled with and complained against the leadership, God took it personally. God said they are quarreling with me. When they wanted a king of their own and the uh, prophet Samuel was disappointed by this because he was currently the leader of Israel and he felt rejected by Israel because they said, we don't want a prophet or a judge. We want a king. Samuel was sad and God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, Samuel, get over it. Their problem is not with you. It's with me. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So when the people begin to complain against the leadership, God seems to take it personally. I don't want to belabor that point. Now, it's just the Bible, man. I'm just teaching what the Bible says. Verse 3, but the people thirsted for, there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? they're already forgetting the fact that in Egypt they were slaves. That in Egypt their children were stolen, maimed, exterminated. Their backs were beaten and whipped and laid bare. That they were oppressed and marginalized and tormented and overworked. 
all the pictures of what a life of sin does to us. And the first moment now when God has brought them out through the leadership of Moses, of Moses that they encounter difficulty, they forget the difficulties of the old life and begin to grumble and complain about the new one. And that is a sin. And it's an insult to the Lord our God. They were losing sight of what God is doing. Didn't God say, I'm going to take you into the promised land? Didn't he say, I'm going to bring you into a place where it flows with milk and honey? I'm going to bring you into a rest, into a safe place, into a good place? The process wasn't over yet. They were in the midst of it. The story wasn't over. God wasn't done. Hang on, hold fast. He'll get us there. It's just like in Matthew 14 when he said to the disciples, get in the boat and go to the other side. When he says the other side, it means he's going to get you to the other side. They got in the boat and they encountered a storm and they begin to despair of their lives. And Jesus comes walking on the wind and the waves and he rebukes the wind and the waves and he says, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Didn't you think I would get you to the other side? You guys complaining here in the, in the wilderness, he says to them. Do you really think that I brought you out of Egypt? that I did all of that to Pharaoh, that I humbled all of Egypt to bring you out here and let you die? No, I am faithful and I will see you through. And so God did. And so it is the same in our lives. We're gonna have difficulty in this life, but hold on, hold fast to Jesus. He will see you through. Nobody else is gonna see you through. It's Mother's Day, but not even your mama can see you through all the way to the end. Only Jesus Christ can see you through to the end. Keep your hope and your gaze and your heart fixed on him. He's the apostle and the faithful high priest. He's going to get us there. Don't abandon him. Amen. The kindness of the Lord is that he gave them drink in that place. And he doesn't deal with them then. But this started a hardening in the corporate heart of Israel that was ultimately tragically made manifest in Numbers chapter 14. Go there, and that's where we'll end. Numbers chapter 14. Now, the context for Numbers 14 is this. They've come through the wilderness, and now they've come to the border of the promised land. And in chapter 13, Moses sent in the spies. Remember that? He sent in the 12 spies, one from each of the tribes of Israel. Two of those spies we're very familiar with from our previous study in the book of Joshua. Joshua and Caleb were two of those spies. Joshua was a young man at that time, Caleb a little bit older, both relatively young. And remember, the spies go into the land, and there they find that it was just like God said it would, that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember, they collected some of the produce, the grapes, and and the the grapes, the, the vine of grapes was so big that they had to put it on a pole between two men and carry it out. They went in, they spied out the land. It was wonderful, exactly as God said it would be. And they come out and Moses says, what's the report? And 10 of the spies say, we can't do it. It's just like God said it would be. God was totally right. 
It's perfect. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's flowing with milk and honey. Here's the produce. We've seen it with our own eyes, but we can't do it. There's giants in the land. It's going to be too hard. There's too many obstacles. They have fortified cities in there. We don't even have a city. We're a bunch of former slaves that just came through the wilderness. We don't have a city. They have iron chariots in there. We don't even have chariots. They have iron chariots and there's giants. We can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb say, wait a minute. We disagree with the majority report. We hear that 10 of you are saying we can't do it. But the two of us, Joshua and Caleb, we remember that God said he would do it. And so we're thinking that if God said he's going to bring us in and give us the land, that God's going to do it. We're just going to do something outlandish. We're just going to go ahead and take God at his word. We're just going to go ahead and believe God. And so Moses and, excuse me, Joshua and Caleb say, if God said he's going to do it, God's going to do it. Let's go in there. God will give us a victory over the chariots and the cities and the giants. Come on, let's go. And the people say, no. Joshua, Caleb, we're not, we're not with you. We're afraid. We don't believe. Now, their error was a lack of faith in what God said. The error was that they didn't act on God's word. This is quintessential. This is incredibly important. Their error was they didn't act upon God's word. Where the rubber met the road, they failed. They didn't have the faith to trust in who God was, even though they had seen the parting of the Red Sea. Even though they had experienced the cloud at Mount Sinai and the fire and the thunder. Even though they had experienced the manna and the quail and the water coming from the rock, even though they had seen what God had done in the past, they didn't have the faith to entrust him with their future. So they didn't do what God had in store for them for lack of faith. Now we pick it up in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and all the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, we wish that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in the wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So then they said to one another, let's appoint a new leader and go back to Egypt. This is insanity. This is insanity. They saw that when Moses stretched forth his staff, that the sea was parted in two. They've been given safe passage by the Lord. The Lord delivered them from slavery into freedom and has provided for them all the way. And now they're saying, why is the Lord doing this to us? Let's go back to Egypt. They're doubting, they're casting aspersion on, they're throwing aside the character and the work of God. The character and the work of God. We don't believe God is good. We think we're all going to die here. We don't think he's actually going to make good on his word and bring us into the place of rest and the place of peace. It would be better off if we had died in Egypt. This is utter insanity. And this is what the Christian needs to be very careful of doing in times of difficulty. 
Because we're going to experience the same moments where, where, where the rubber meets the road, where our faith needs to become active. Things have been okay, but all of a sudden there's a huge trial. There's a huge temptation. There's a difficult situation. And we know what God's word says and we know what God has said. And the protocol is to trust God even though there's fortresses and giants in the land and iron chariots and we're outnumbered, so to speak. Even though the circumstances are overwhelming, what the Christian must do is trust Christ in that moment. And what it means to trust Christ is to act upon his word. That's what it means. And so we go to the Word of God and say, what does the Word of God say about this situation in my life? And I'll tell you, it's got something to say. We go to the Word of God. What does it have to say about this difficulty that I'm encountering? How should I act in the face of this attack? Or or this lack of provision? Or this difficulty? Or this heartache? Or this heartbreak? And then we do the Word. Then we do the Word. That is being faithful to God and it is in that that we experience the faithfulness of God and the victory of God. They failed to do that. And it didn't make any sense. Verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? You see, God's track record is our future assurance. God's past performance is our future hope. God says, wait a minute, where did I fail Israel that they're doubting me now? What did I do wrong in the past that they have reason to not trust me now? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. You didn't do anything wrong. Now, the reason why the Hebrews are warned about this repeatedly in the book of Hebrews is that there's always consequences to this sort of rebellion. I want us to look in verse 20. Numbers 14, verse 20. Little context before we get to 20. Moses prays, intercedes on their behalf, and says, God, I know they're totally blowing it, but would you forgive them? And God forgives them. Okay? This hardness of heart that they're having, this started back there at Meribah, when they didn't believe God for his provision of the water, that hardness of heart that started in that little thing has now gotten huge. And they're really blowing it on a grand, huge, massive scale. And someone intercedes, Moses says, will you forgive him? And you know God. You know God. He forgives them. Verse 20, So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. He forgave them. But, but, indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Their disobedience was somehow casting aspersion on the glory of God. Verse 22, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of them who spurn me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Notice, the Lord forgave them, but forgiveness doesn't fix everything. That was an important point in our study last week. Forgiveness doesn't fix 
everything. There are always temporal consequences to our rebellion. He forgave them. But the consequences of your action is you're not going into the promised land. You're not going to experience. And now this generation, the Exodus generation, we're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died out and only the following generation was allowed to go into the promised land, the Joshua generation. So the Exodus generation ended in hardness of heart and rebellion and God forgave them, but there were temporal consequences. You will not see the promises for your lack of faith. And the Joshua generation enters in. Verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they're making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken to my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land, which I swore to settle you, except for Caleb and Joshua. Your children, whom you said would become prey, I'm going to bring them into the land and they shall know the land that you rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness and your sons will be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the numbers of days you spied out the land, 40 days, For every day you shall bear your guilt a year for 40 years. You shall know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed and there they shall die. That's gnarly. We cannot forget in our soft American Christianity the holiness of God. God is holy. He is to be believed. He is to be trusted. He is to be followed. He is to be obeyed. He is to be worshipped. There were dire consequences for Israel when they didn't. God forgave them. Forgiveness is not the issue. But there were temporal consequences. Listen, listen, listen. I, I see you guys getting all wiggly. Please don't. Bugs me. There's going to be some pivotal decisions in life and you need to slow down and seek the Lord. If they had just gotten together and just slowed down and said, guys, let's just pray for a little bit. Let's just remember what God said. Let's do a Bible study on Genesis chapter 12. Let's go back to the Abrahamic covenant. Let's look again at Genesis 15 and Genesis 18 and Genesis 21. Let's remember what God said about bringing us into the promised land. Let's be encouraged in the word and then let's act according to the word. If they had just slowed down, got into the word, maybe had a prayer meeting, listened to the counsel of two godly men, Joshua and Caleb, they would have avoided 40 years of horror. And what causes righteous indignation in the heart of any feeling person is that the following generation also suffered in the wilderness for 40 years because of the sins of the fathers. You see, sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. It affects the corporate body of God. It affects the household of God. So we must be on guard against hardness of heart. If there's an issue in your life where you are in rebellion, stop 
Slow down. Get into the word of God. Get into prayer. Seek counsel from godly men and women. Make a godly, right, obedient decision because the stakes are high in life. Don't make a wrong move in the time of doubt, the time of difficulty, the time of uncertainty, the time of waiting. If you hear the voice of God today, obey it. Do what he is calling you to do. He is holy. He is to be feared. He is to be obeyed. Don't make decisions in times of confusion. That is a time to wait. That's a time to wait. Don't make decisions when you don't have a clear understanding. Wait and seek the Lord. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He's going to make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil for it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. So wait on the Lord. Trust the Lord. What does it say for those who wait? Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator, the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. God is, amen. God is faithful. Let him have your heart. Don't harden your heart. If you hear his voice today, Respond. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this warning from your word. And we ask that you make us humble people who would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and entrust ourselves to your faithfulness. Holy Spirit, come and do a work now. No doubt there's people among us who are in rebellion to you in general or in little areas of our lives. We ask that you'd have mercy on us, Lord. Thank you that you're a God who so easily and readily forgives because of the cross. Forgive us, but turn us, Lord. Keep us from shipwreck. Keep us from disaster. Keep us from wandering in the wilderness when we should be resting in the promises. Lord, don't let us take the situations into our own hands. We confess that we make such a mess of our lives. Help us, Lord. We don't want to be like that Exodus generation that in the moment of difficulty doubted and faltered. We want to be the Joshua generation who trusted and followed and entered in and experienced all that you had for them. We want everything you have for us, Lord. Nothing more and nothing less. Work in us humble and soft hearts. Expose our hearts, Holy Spirit. Expose rebellion and waywardness. Fear that has us bound up. Pride that's got us on the wrong course. If you guys need help today, the prayer team is going to be up here. Come let them pray for you. Don't leave this place with a hard heart. If you're hearing God speak into your life on a situation, obey Him today because He is good and you can trust Him.